Jordan and Gretzky, Serena and Ruth Remembering great ones is easy to do But what about the no names who spent their whole lives Long stepping footballs and catching sack flies They're guys, remember that guy some guys now the kitchen staff elon and her staff um jeff i'm gonna thank everybody uh jeff johnny pam uh miss marilyn uh chris just all of them just making sure that i had everything that i need and all our teammates um because i'm very specific on what i eat every morning you know and bob with the avocados making sure I had my avocados ever remember that guy, the show where we mine our memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players past and present. Hey there, folks. I'm one of your hosts, James. And yeah, thank you to Bob for just making sure that we are all set here every night with our green room. And I'm not the only one set in that green room right now. We are drowning in avocados over here. Diaz back with you once again. And we have a very special guest and we're going to need him because he has the greatest guacamole recipe in the world please introduce yourself yeah you know the secret is don't put tomatoes in there and have a inordinate amount of lemon juice it gives it the right consistency but you know that's just a little secret uh from me the very special guest xavier well xavier thank you for your culinary expertise it is i mean the main reason that we have you on here let's be frank but it's not the only reason and i think perhaps along with this culinary expertise you've brought some memories being made? Yeah, I got a couple things. Uh, so we talked about this off pod recently. NBC New York with some of the pettiest headlines on Twitter. All and, timers, please. And this is, there was a new one today, which is why I'm bringing it up. But I also want to go through a little bit of history about this. So NBC New York, they started this in September of 2022. September 14th, 2022, headline. Giselle Bunchen candidly revealed the sacrifices she has made for her husband, Tom Brady, who lost two Super Bowls to the New York Giants. Six days later, the Florida mansion that five-time World Series champion Derek Jeter built in 2012 and recently rented to Tom Brady, who lost two Super Bowls to the New York Giants, soon could be demolished, according to reports. (laughs) (laughs) February 1st, 2023, Tom Brady who lost two Super Bowls to the Giants in what was otherwise a noteworthy NFL career, says he's retiring, parentheses, again, from football. And this time he means it, question mark? I really appreciate that all of this started with the story about his divorce. That's when they decided they really started needing to, like, really fuck a little bit extra with Tom Brady. And then this week, hashtag breaking, Bill Belichick, who lost two Super Bowls to the Giants, Expected to part ways with Patriots later today, reports say, as 24-year tenure ends with regular season loss to Jets. I'm so glad you guys got in on one of these. Like, that's the kicker. I'm so thoroughly glad that the entire New York, New Jersey, Jets, Giants diaspora just got to take one last dump on the witch who, ding-dong everybody, he is dead. But it's not over yet, James, because there was another one today. Hashtag breaking. Source confirms Patriots hire Gerard Mayo, who also lost the Super Bowl to the Giants as next head coach. See, here's, 
the only thing that concerns me about this. I think it has been very proven and demonstrated that there is no athlete in the history of sports that runs more on spite than Tom Brady. So what I'm very worried about is these headlines are coming Oh, this out. is what brings him back. Well, here's specifically what I'm concerned about. I think we have a nightmare scenario here. Bill Belichick is being rumored to go back to the Falcons to be their head coach. I don't know why I said go back. He's never been with them before. He's rumored to go there for the first time. And I'm a little worried. Tom Brady is very divorced and has nothing better to do. And he gets a call from his old friend, Bill Belichick. And he says, hey, man, how about we get the band back together one more time? The last time you went to an NFC South team that was loaded with weapons and just needed a quarterback to put it all together. It worked out pretty well for you. Let's try it one more time. I'm very concerned about this. Let's say Tom Brady wins the Atlanta Falcons a Super Bowl. How could you possibly process, like, the architect of the greatest downfall in the history of the sport? Like, probably if you are a diehard Falcons fan, never in your life have you felt more pain than in that roughly 35 or so minutes of game time. And then he becomes, I think it would be the closest you could ever come to saying that a fan base got cucked. Like, you just gotta sit there, and you gotta watch it, and you're gonna feel real dirty about loving it, but goddammit, you're gonna love it. I don't think we're ever gonna say a funnier thing on this show. I think, like, we might be done. I don't know. Are we? Do we keep going? Look, I think that's kind of what sports is all about, too, though, because, you know, what happens after the funniest moment of the podcast. You got to work towards the next funniest moment of the podcast. You got to keep moving forward. That's true. Got to well, raise the bar. Yeah. Xavier, raise that bar for us a little bit higher. What else you got? Yeah. So by the time that our listeners hear this, this will have already happened, except for, I think, the Eagles game, which, correct me if I'm wrong, Diaz, that's the Monday night game. Regrettably, yeah. they do play on Monday night. It's all right. I the Eagles are going to win that game. I've I already, really I've already decided. I have decided I, the Eagles are going to win that game. Oh, uh, I just need to be done with this team. It's, <laughs> You're it's, wearing the hoodie right now. Listener, he is I, wearing a Philadelphia <laughs> Eagles hoodie as we speak. I, I fucking hate this team so much. <laughs> I hate them. Um, and like, and like they seemingly hate us. Like there's the quote that Darius Slay came out with about, Oh, it's probably better. We're on the road. Cause they get to booing a little too easy at home. I'm like, you lost to the fucking three-win Arizona Cardinals in a game that if you had won, you would have controlled your own destiny at the Giants to win the division. And that's after the like the month-long collapse going into that. I I fucking hate this team. And you know what? That's why Xavier is unfortunately right. And they are going to win. And I'm gonna have to talk myself into them going to San Francisco and winning. Yeah. They're gonna win that game. Then I also I have seen it in my mind's eye that half of the Dolphins players will die of frostbite because they're going to be playing a negative 30 wind chill during a massive storm that the National Weather Service has said no one should go outside in. And tickets for that game in Kansas City are are $38. That's some football weather right there. I spent some time in football weather last week. Can you picture Tua just as a frozen icicle because that's just i that is what i'm expecting to happen like he will drop back to pass and the ball will freeze in his hand 
And then he'll get sacked by Chris Jones and shatter into pieces. That is what's going to happen in this game. I will say on the other side, they're going to run a billion jet sweeps with Tyreek Hill and win. It is very, very silly that in the face of like literally like the National Weather Service saying nobody should be outside. The NFL has gone full Titanic band and said, fuck that. There is football to be played and I'll be damned if our schedule will be rearranged. You almost got to admire it because, you know, not, we're not only talking about that game. We're also talking about Steelers at Bills where it's looking like we're going to get some crazy winds and some lake effect snow. Well, um, and again, that's going to be a pa- shit show too. Past tense. We had these crazy winds and this crazy snow. It was an insane oh, game. Yes. We did. Yeah. It, was, it was an incredible The, the game. amount of tables broken insane they shatter so much easier in that weather and you know that that one brawl that did involve matt mahan probably not you know the best look for us but you know i think he's getting bailed out of jail tomorrow so it'll be okay you know he at least got to watch the steelers lose by only about 15 in a season where they were somehow very bad and still won 10 games the mike tomlin effect is real but they were not better than the bills Hey, credit to them. They swept the Super Bowl champions in both their matchups. And we also got to give a big shout out to our favorite quarterback who's not named Lamar Jackson or Jalen Hurts in these playoffs. And that would be Joe Flacco. He is very elite. And boy, did he dice up that Texans defense. I mean, we saw it in the regular season. I don't know why anybody thought anything different would happen on the return trip. He's simply elite, and that's why, to your point, James, it's very good that Dolphins did pull off that upset because it does mean that the stars are still aligning for Joe Flacco to return to Baltimore for the AFC Championship game. It's happening. Joe Flacco is playing an AFC Championship game in Baltimore once in his life. It's just going to be the most (laughs) monkey Paul way possible. The Deshaun Watson derby of teams that are paying Deshaun Watson a lot of money to not play football. It is incredible. Yeah, like the the universe saw that we have the wholesome Matt Stafford reunion, but specifically the Matt Stafford homecoming. And it knew that we could not allow the shit show that would be Deshaun Watson returning to Houston to happen. We in the same season are going to get Matt Stafford playing a playoff game in Detroit and Joe Flacco playing a playoff game in Baltimore. It's a beautiful world as long as you're patient enough. You know, it was a great first weekend of the NFL playoffs, and we're very excited for what comes next. Getting to see the Baltimore Ravens and the Eagles on their collision course for the Super Bowl. But enough about football. James, what is making memories for you? Well, here's the problem, Xavier. I want to talk a little bit more about football. (laughs) I don't have, like, a lot of eloquent thoughts planned about this. I want to just kind of, like, spit off the dome. There's something in the air. It's the year of Harbaugh. I just want to take a second to say I've never seen a more main character season of football in my life than this most recent University of Michigan season. And I'm not smart about college football, but for this, uh, frankly, insane person, who spent all of this time as I knew him initially through like Stanford and San Francisco being this quarterback guru, this offensive guru 
to see him already live the charmed life of, you know, first Jim Harbaugh and John Harbaugh met in just a regular season game, a Thanksgiving game. I remember that game in Baltimore very well. We're, we're saying that's insane later that year when it looks like they might meet up because both teams make it to the conference championships games and lose. Like, oh, how incredible that even that happened. And then they do actually meet in the Super Bowl. Of course, Jim loses. But then he gets the job of his dreams, going back to the school that had built his entire family and to grind away at Michigan to get a chance in this day and age at uh, a program with very high expectations to like get to grind that long. And to finally find instead not some kind of explosive revolutionary offense like the one that they were scheduled to face in the college championship game. He gets it by just some fucking old-fashioned, hard-hitting, grindstone football. We're going to run the ball every fucking down. They did, what, 38 consecutive in the one game that he wasn't in and on defense? Don't let anyone ever fucking score anything. Just punch him in the nose. Get caught in two different cheating scandals. He was what they like. Some of the players are getting 15 and no tattoos, which is great. All for it. And Jim Harbaugh should not be able to get a 15 and no tattoo because he wasn't even there for all of the games. And to just to finish the career of Nick Saban, the horse that all of the college coaches are chasing. And hey, credit to Nick Saban. Honestly, that's way more impressive than Bill Belichick. Winning six national titles at any school. Far more impressive than what Bill Belichick has done. I uh, am immovable on that. Yeah, again, I didn't... I just... Truly just the most protagonist-driven season of college football I've ever seen in my life. Like, it, it, they were the main character from months out. They kept making themselves the main character time and time again. And then, fuck, they did actually go and win the championship. I keep thinking about the Harbaugh family, like the insane level of coaching success that the family has. I mean, Jack, Division One AA, now FCS national champion with Western Kentucky. We know about John. We know about Jim. You know, their brother-in-law is Tom Crean. Yeah, because he beat <laughs> Temple in that one season. And he's the worst performing of their family members because he only made it to the Final Four with Dwayne Wade and didn't win the national championship, which makes him a lo the loser of the family. And then we have the Harbaugh with the greatest winning percentage as a coach, and that's Jay, who is 1-0, baby, when he was interim head coach while Jim was out on suspension this year. And I'm sorry, I just realized I've made the most massive oversight. Ravens legend Jim Harbaugh. And Ravens legend Jay Harbaugh, who was the uh, quality control assistant for three years. Okay, Jim Harbaugh took the field. Let's, let's, Jim Harbaugh threw some fucking touchdown passes. They've been saying team legend for someone who's been on the team for five months. Yeah, but they were on the team. But you've heard of them. This is, this is no disrespect to the support staff who are all incredibly important. They are not physical marvels who have devoted their entire lives to being physical marvels. Speaking of physical marvels, though, that's that's really everything I have to say about the marvelous Michigan season. However, Diaz, there may be something that you have to say about just other things in general. Yeah, so I'll go with a little bit of a personal-ish note this week. Uh, so last night as we recorded, the Windy City Bulls, which are the Chicago Bulls G League affiliate, visited the Westchester Knicks 
for some G League action. It was a crazy game. They went to overtime. And for the G League in overtime, they have the Elam ending now, which I love. Uh, They also had it last year, but this was the first time that one of the games that I was working went to the Elam ending. And I got to say, the best part of the Elam ending is it forces both teams to actually play defense because this was a game that went to overtime. I believe it was tied at 121. Not a ton of defense being played. For the overtime period, I would be shocked if the teams combined to shoot better than 25%. There were blocks at the rim. There were steals. All that was crazy. Uh, The Knicks finally won when Jacob Toppin, the younger brother of Obi Toppin, who is allegedly better than Obi Toppin, this according uh, to some sources that I cannot disclose, but they are people that have had a lot of eyes on Knicks basketball. But the other cool thing that happened last night was Bill Murray was at the game. Fucking Bill Murray. Because his son is an assistant coach for UConn. One of UConn's players from last year, uh, Sapongo, was playing for Windy City. Bill's a sports fan. Son's going, why not? So he got the courtside treatment and was, I would say, very pleasant. To all my crew members, uh, my fellow crew members who went over to say hi. I personally didn't because when I see celebrities in public, I'm like, okay, they've been bothered by enough people. I don't need to add to it kind of thing. But Bill was classy. It was a classy game. It was a classy tip-in by Jacob Toppin. Yeah, the G League rocks. I wish it, that people paid more attention to it because like, it was a very thoroughly entertaining game from start to finish. And... It's the second best level of basketball in the country. And, you know, that's kind of something that I admire a lot about, like, European sports culture and South American sports culture. Like, the third and fourth divisions sell out and have just as passionate of fans as, like, the the Premier League in England. Look at fucking Leon. Uh, Right, exactly. Exactly. There's, if you truly want to, like, appreciate the sport, you consider yourself a fan of the sport, you need to support it at its lower levels. And the G League's like not even that low of a level. Like we can look at guys in the NBA like Pascal Siakam has played in the G League. Fucking Mitchell Robinson, I don't think played in the G League. He might have played in the G League. There's been a lot it's of guys that played in the G League. See, the Knicks defense was bad because the Lakers just stole Dylan Windler from us after he had 33 rebounds in a game last week. Like, wait, oh yeah. A guy had 33 rebounds in a game? We're signing him to a deal so he can get Two minutes off the bench for us, maybe once. And the funny thing is, like, I can tell you from, like, having watched, like, the G League Knicks, like, I wouldn't even say Dylan Windler is, like, a particularly aggressive rebounder. Like, he's good at it. But, no, that, that, that was when we, when we saw that stat come across. It was so funny because when we got the press release from the Westchester Knicks, it was like, Dylan Windler such G League record as the Westchester Knicks fall. You know what? It, it happens. No one's going to remember the score. They'll remember Windler. And, I mean, the way that he was attacking the glass, I think it's very, very fair to say he had that dog in him. He did. He had dog. He had a certain ineffable, immeasurable quality. But I don't think it's impossible to measure, perhaps. And I think that, Diaz, is a perfect segue into what we want to talk about today. But before we get to 
exactly what we want to talk about today. We have to real quick talk about everybody's favorite 1975 thriller. We have to talk about Jaws. We are not actually going to talk about the shark film, though I do want to take a moment to say that is my third favorite thing called Jaws. Number four, I'm glad you asked. The henchman in James Bond with the metal mouth because he's one of the five villains in a Bond movie, I think, to appear in more than one movie. I just think that's neat that they were like, yeah, this guy with the metal mouth who doesn't really talk, that is one of the best ideas we've ever had. Number two is the book Jaws. It is better for two reasons. One, they cut out a whole plot line where the mayor is getting extorted by the mob and it actually makes sense that the mayor would then be like, oh, I need to keep this town open for the money because the mob will kill me otherwise. The other is a slightly stupider plot line that they take it out, but it's very funny that Richard Dreyfuss' character basically cucks Sheriff Brody because (laughs) uh, Sheriff Brody's wife meets him. She's like, oh, I dated your brother once and then she has an affair with him. And so Richard Dreyfuss is just like cucking Sheriff Brody for half the book. That's two cucking references so far. (laughs) Can we make it a third before the end of the episode? It's it's on you at this point, Xavier. The number one Jaws is the stat Jaws. Stat, maybe not the best term for it. It's a concept that was introduced by baseball writer Jay Jaffe in 2004. What it talks about is the Hall of Fame, essentially. Around that time, it was much as it is now for us, the time where we think about the Hall of Fame because it is Hall of Fame election time. And we are considering the the merits of different cases. You know, sometimes you've got guys like Adrian Beltre who are slam dunks, but most players require more discussion about whether or not they belong in the Hall a lot of the time. And what Jay Jaffe saw in 2004 was, by the way, this was on uh, Baseball Prospectus, just to give a quick plug to front of the show, Craig Goldstein. They are right now shipping the annual for the year. It's a really great piece of baseball writing. I will be putting in for a copy soon. I recommend you do the same if you like it. Anyway, Jay, in 2004, developed this formula that would try and measure Hall of Fame candidates in a way that went away from what older writers were doing at the time. Because what older writers wanted was big numbers. And he saw a lot of guys that were coming up with big numbers because they were more compilers of stats. What Jaws attempts to do is it tries to reconcile, you know, the length of career with what it is like to see brighter careers that might not last as long. It's a a very basic formula. What it stands for is Jaffe War Score System. And it's going to be based off that central stat war, wins against replacement. We are going to use, for what it's worth, B-War here, which is the war generated by Baseball Reference, part of the Sports Reference family of websites. The JAWS formula takes two things. The career war that a player produced that will, you know, acknowledge that sticking around is important. You need to still have a large number at the end. You need to be around to get uh, those grand sums. But there's going to be a smaller number that is averaging out with that. And that is the war accumulated during the seven-year peak. You take these two numbers, you add them together. Let's take Adrian Beltre, for instance. He has 93.5 career war. That is third all time for third baseman. And he has 48.7 in his seven-year peak. You average those together, get a Jaws of 71.1. That is sixth all time for third baseman. So he's no slouch there. Average that together. I'm like, okay, obviously this is a guy. Uh, Or sorry, not a guy, Hall of Famer. (laughs) 
And something important is that when you're talking about Jaws, a lot of the time you are going to be looking, you know, this is about seeing where these guys stack up to people already in the hall. What the idea of Jaws for Jaffe essentially was is a way to try and maintain, or if not maintain, improve the standard of the Hall of Fame by seeing how these new incoming candidates as time marches on stack up to those already in there. Third base, by the way, interesting. It illustrates one problem, which is sample size. Like, there's not a lot of third baseman there. It's the, actually the third least represented position in the Hall. It is still ahead of relief pitchers and DHs. There's two DHs, six relief pitchers, but still only 14 third basemen in the Hall of Fame. So it is also notable for Jaws that a lot of the time they will, especially with like position players, in order to expand the sample size, average together all position players that you're getting an idea to of like, how is this player just as a hitter who plays defense compared to other hitters who play defense if you've got a smaller sample to select from. This is... Very far from perfect, it's going to ignore any kind of, you know, championships that people have, any general postseason accolades. Uh, you know, it's not really going to give any credence to awards like MVPs, Cy Youngs, things of that nature. You know, it doesn't necessarily contextualize if low stats might still lead in certain statistical categories at time. But if you need a quick one-stop number to kind of say, how does this player stack up to other Hall of Famers at their position? is a very useful one to start the conversations. That's great for the Hall of Fame, but we're not really necessarily interested in determining the greatness of players. We want to determine the guyness of players. And now that you all kind of understand what Jaws is sought to do, you'll understand a little bit more what we are seeking to do here with the Hall. The thing that we're trying to do here is to Find some way, imperfect, again, this is not going to say, is a person a guy, yes or no. But it's going to give us some kind of measurement of how they perform and certain factors that we think are essential to guyness and at least start the conversation with like, hey, does this person need extra arguments made for them? Is this person unquestionably going in? Things of that nature. It helps you identify extremes. Uh, and it also will help us establish a baseline for what a guy is in terms of what we already have here in the hall. So we've all kind of looked at what the different fundamental qualities of a guy are and how we want to measure them and compare them. Uh, I'm interested to hear what the approaches from the two of you were. Sure. So for me, I came up with three kind of identifying factors that I look for in a guy the first one that came to mind for me was actions that put the team ahead of self. I think that is a clear quality that we are looking for in guys. And like the one example that came up to me was Ian LaPerriere. Do either of you know Ian LaPerriere? Can't say that I do. He was a longtime NHL journeyman, um, French Canadian, if you can't tell by the name. And he was playing for the Flyers the year that they had their kind of miracle cup run in 2010. And he blocked the shot with his face. And I want to say game one of the series against the Canadians. And it was very, very bad. Um, and it was very, very bloody. But he then came back in game five, despite having like multiple facial fractures. He just had like a big old mask on it. And his first shift back out there with the Flyers, what did he do? 
He fucking dove in front of a slap shot and blocked it. And I think that might have been the loudest I've ever heard a Flyers crowd. Just this fucking fourth line, end of his career grinder, throwing his body in front of a slap shot with his recently broken face and landing on the line for the team. So to me, that's one of the most important factors that I identify for a guy. Another thing I look for, doing what is right, even if you will be judged. I think a guy has a certain sense of justice when it comes to the sports world and will go to any lengths to protect that. And the thing that came to mind for me with this was Pat Beverly. You love him, you hate him. When LeBron got fouled at the end of the game against the Celtics last year, and LeBron was incredibly demonstrative. It was stuff straight out of a soap opera with his reactions. And what does Patrick Beverly do? He doesn't care if he's going to get a technical. He goes and finds a photographer courtside and grabs his camera and goes to show it to the referee. Like, look, this is him getting hit on the arm right here. That action got him teed up. It might have led to the Lakers losing that game. But it was what was right in that moment. And it's a very memorable moment. I think guys have memorable moments. I think it's, it's one of many in the belt of Patrick Beverly. And then the third thing I look for is stepping up in big moments. And to me, the most classic of this is Hall of Guy nominee, but not inductee. He's still waiting down in the basement for his time to shine. Maybe this could lead to it for him. Robert Ory. Okay. Robert Ory was that guy that if he was on the team, yes, you're more scared of Hakeem Olajuwon. You're more scared of Vernon Maxwell. You're more scared of Kobe. You're more scared of Shaq. But if it's the game on the line, you're most scared of that fucking guy that always makes that shot. So for me, those are the three categories that I think are most central to what is a guy. So actions that put team ahead of the self doing what is right, even if you will be judged, and stepping up in big moments. I think three core tenets of what it means to be a guy. So I I like the examples that we're pulling for each of these. I want to, like, let's start with the first one. If we're talking about things that put the team over self, if we're looking for ways that we can measure it, things where we're looking for that metric. I like block shots in hockey a lot. I think yes. I agree. That's one to fixate on. Do you have ones for any of the other sports off the top of your head? So we're stepping up in big moments. I know. Hit by, well, I was, I was like, even just with that first point, oh, like, for other hit by pitches in baseball. Hit by pitches, I think, could be up there. Football is tough, but I think pro football focus is coming out with a lot of things. So I would say it would be like a defensive lineman that gets double teamed every single snap. Okay. Something like that. Who can um, draw the most double teams? Right. Yeah. Who can draw the most double teams? Um, and then for basketball, it would be charges taken. Um, which Patrick Bev yeah. and Pat Bev is frequently towards the top of that. So yeah, I think for that first one, those were all, all be good statistics to measure that. Doing what is right, even if, even if you'll be judged, that can be tougher to quantify. Uh, but stepping up in big moments, I think you know across all sports, we can we can identify those kind of clutch players. Yeah, we can definitely like find who's got the most production in basketball in clutch time, no problem. I'm sure we could run stat head with uh, baseball to find like, I mean, runners in scoring position. Everyone's like, we can definitely get runners in scoring position splits for people and find uh, different battings on that. There's definitely, I agree that I think those are all factors that help build out the body of work. Like that's helping to establish, okay, what are 
what is the inherent guy-like production on the field this individual is putting forth? Yeah, so I think, yeah, the, the, the team ahead of self is probably the biggest statistical contribution I'll be able to come up with. Because I think for each of the four major sports, we have a good thing there. For soccer, I guess, what would you come up with? Like tackles per game, I guess. Somebody that really gets stuck in, makes a lot of tackles. Just distance covered. I was about to say the dudes that yeah. have to run the most. Yeah. yeah. That this feels good. a good one. That feels very good. Well, Xavier, what do you think we need to be looking at as we try to judge the merits of these guys on a numerical basis? So I had two things that I thought of that kind of scream guy to me and have been things that I've looked at a lot when looking for people to talk about uh, on this podcast. And the first one is career length. If they play for 15 years or more, but have never made an all-star appearance or maybe had a, like one token appearance and, you know, they just somehow keep, they're just always there and they're, they're good enough to not get cut, but bad enough to not like go be like sought out by anybody else. So I think about, you know, Patrick Manley where, you know, he, he was just there, ever-present on the Bears for 15-plus seasons. I mean, to a different extent, Bruce Bowen, who's just like, I'm going to be playing 20 years. I don't care where. I'm just going to be playing. Even get people like Ben Zobrist, who Shota Imanaga said is who he wants to honor by wearing number 18, which is fucking insane. Like, That's that Shota Imanaga cares about... Like wanting to honor Ben Zobrist with the Cubs. Shota Imanago, please, if you hear this, come onto this show to talk to me about Ben Zobrist. So career length, I definitely think is is a big thing. Also, when we've talked about we've talked about boomerang guys and multi-country guys and people who have just gone everywhere. And I think the willingness to just go wherever like you're wanted or wherever it is possible for you to keep playing is important. I know he's still active, but almost certainly upon retirement, he'll be, you know, inducted into this hall ish Smith, someone who has played for 15 plus teams. And it's just wherever I can get a check, I will go. Yes. Edwin Jackson, like those long careers and willingness to just bounce around wherever just to keep playing because either you want to or you need the money both count as just very much guy to me and i mean like you have to have it's the exact level of skill and talent of someone who is like in the top one percent of everyone in the world but the bottom one percent of people in that professional field essentially and I do love that so much. And so I think, like, trying to measure that, I look at long careers without, like, sustained success and number of teams played for. Where it's like, right. oh, we can upgrade upon you. But then some other team will be like, yeah, we could use you at the back of our bench. Until then, we can upgrade upon you. And another team will then want you on the back of their bench. There was a third thing that's kind of hard to quantify for a lot of sports, and it's just availability. Where I was thinking about Kent to Colby, and just I don't care if my arm falls off, I'm going to go out there every day 
and a thing that would not be allowed in in baseball nowadays. And even in basketball, we get so much of the you know load management that they had to change the awards to set a minimum number of games played. Hockey it has very famous Ironman streaks, which usually end only because of severe injuries. But availability would be like just the third one of just being there. You're able to play, you know, no matter what's going on, you're willing to just get out on the court, on the ice, on the pitch. I find it interesting that you brought that one up third, because I think that one will essentially show up in anyone who's meeting your previous desired benchmarks of a cap on overall productivity while still having long duration and production with a lot of different people. Cause I think if you do that, like a bunch of people aren't going to keep giving you jobs if you can't stay healthy and you're not going to be able to stick around that long if you can't stay healthy. So I, I fully agree. And I think that's going to show up really easily in the other two things you're searching for. So I think naturally, you know, your criteria is already kind of self-selecting for people that have that availability. Oh, definitely. If you're if you're going to get injured a lot, the chances of you having that lengthy career are much lessened. But, you know, it, it they're not always mutually exclusive. There could be people like Zlatan, who he he is the guyest guy to ever guy in that he just he is Zlatan and he's played for 24 years of professional football all over. Like I think he's played for 10 or 11 different teams and three different continents. But he's had multiple like ACL tears and things like that. So it's not it's not mutually exclusive, but it the availability is a definite thing that would come with most of, you know, length of career and, you know, number of teams played for. If you're available, it's going to make you more attractive to teams for like those bench roles. So I will admit, I, I think you guys have done a much better job of identifying what we need to fixate on in order to generate some kind of like score, so to speak, of the overall body of work of someone. And that's one of two factors that I was looking for. And I ended up with my preparation for this really fixating on the relationship between those two rather than a sophisticated way to build those two up. But if, if you'll bear with me, I think with this, we're going to be able to eventually cook together a delicious gumbo. I struggled figuring out what were the best ways to measure the contributions on the field. But I had a couple revelations while sitting on the toilet. Uh, <laughs> one of them was Jaws is here to help us contextualize candidates in relation to people that are already inducted. And so this paralysis I was having it seeking like, well, how do I measure, you know, the data set of all of the guys that might be out there that we might, is it, no, 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 I don't need to worry about that. What I need to worry about first is the guys that are in the hall. So we can see what they've already produced and how to contextualize people coming in in comparison to those guys. And then one of the other things I realized is like, look, Jaws at the end of the day, it's not a statistic. It is an expression of a statistical career. It's a quick way to look at something that sums up someone. And so in order to try and focus on that quick summing up and that relationship between the two things, figured, look, 
let's not reinvent the wheel here. For the overall body of work, I admit I'm going to turn to like the easy numbers that the different sports reference websites give us. For baseball, I looked at B-War. For football, I looked at AV, or approximate value, which is kind of similar, except it functions with less precision. With basketball, I looked at win shares, and with hockey, I looked at points shares. So I got all of those from reference, along with the length of the careers. We wanted to see, you know, not just how much someone was able to accumulate, we wanted to see rate stats, or else we're running the same risk that JAWS was trying to avoid at just rewarding compilers or anti-compilers, in the case of some of these guys. So we needed to convert everything to rate stat. And this felt easy with basketball and football, which divide by games. Hockey was pretty easy initially, except when I did it, it turned out that the way that goalies work, it, it was strange because they were getting so much more production. Uh, for that one, I took two players that we had, Mike Sillinger and Clint Malarchuk. It felt like they had about the same length of career, pretty similar productivity. And it turns out that Clint Malarchuk was just pretty much three times Mike Sillinger. So for our two goalies that are featured, uh, Ken Dryden and Clint Malarchuk, just divide them by three. We're making up the rules here. Baseball, similar concern. Pitchers are going to have a, a different relationship with number of games played versus batters. However, everyone's going to have pretty similar plate appearances for batters and batters faced for pitchers. And so that's what we're going to use to measure the duration of those careers. Okay, that is going to help us look at the body of work of the players. There's something else, though, that we need to look at, and that's cultural impact. We need to find the relationship between how much did these guys do and how worth remembering are they? Xavier, you've brought up many times that like, look, we talk about guys and you could even say sometimes remember guys about players that aren't necessarily guys. Like sometimes people sit around and remember Michael Jordan. Sometimes we'll look at Barry Bonds baseball reference page and that's fun to do. It's a fun sports exercise. Those aren't guys. So while they're going to have a lot of cultural impact, they're going to have that in relation to a very, very large body of work. And so what I think we're ideally looking for is someone who has an oversized cultural impact in relation to their body of work. So you guys following so far, or does this sound entirely insane? I'm following. Okay. Here's the fun thing. I wanted to build a data set for this. So I got all the players from the five major leagues. We'll include the WNBA here. So that's everyone from MLB, NFL, NHL, and uh, the NBA and WNBA who have produced any amount of war, AV, win shares, or point shares. Wouldn't you know it? That is exactly 69 guys. <laughs> nice. That tells me the math was done correctly. I think this was like an act that was saying, hey, we're going in the right direction. You've got this data set of 69. We want to try and establish some baseline. I, I did that basic division that I mentioned. I took one of those four things that measures their overall production, and I divided it by one of those numbers that I had used to determine how long their career was. We ran into a small problem here in that if I look at like a football player, let's say Joe Juravicious, he produced 36 AV in 133 games. That comes out to about 0.27 AV per game. Whereas, say, Lou Burdett, a very good baseball player, very good pitcher for a long time, 28.6 war facing 12,745 batters does give you a much smaller number, uh, about 0.00224 or 1 100th of the football ones. 
the lucky thing about this is when I was looking at it, football was the biggest. Hockey and basketball were both about a factor of 10 smaller. And baseball was about a factor of 100 smaller. So once again, I cheated a little bit and I did some very easy multiplication and I just got it so that everything was kind of scaled to football. Everything more or less lined up so that like the average person's first digit was in that first digit space after the decimal. And so that's what I just did to cheat. All of baseball players were multiplied by the same amount. All of the hockey and basketball players were multiplied by the same amount. This is just to try and like weight this between the four sports that we're able to look at. So I hope you'll forgive me for that. At this point, we had to figure out a way to measure cultural impact. And I turned to probably the second most used site on this show, other than the various sports reference websites, which is Wikipedia. And so I went to Wikipedia because this is what I thought is going to measure the cultural impact because while certainly a player who has you know a, an illustrious career is going to have a large Wikipedia page, what's also important is guys who have international careers outside of these five leagues. People who fight MLB in the court system, like Kurt Flood, are going to have large portions of their pages about that. People who you know get caught in giant drug bust scandals, like Jason Grimsley, are going to have large portions of their pages for that. It's going to account for things other than what you did on the field, which I think is important for a guy. So I was able to find, uh, rather than looking at the word count or any of that, because that, you know, how do you take into account bibliographies? How do you take into account, like, just the parts where sometimes they list people's awards? What I did instead is I went to the page info of all of the different Wikipedia pages for all 69 of those guys, and I took two things. I took the size of the page in bytes and took that down to kilobytes by dividing a thousand. This also is good, I think, because it's going to give you a different sense of like, are people including pictures or anything or good pictures? I'll tell you, the smallest Wikipedia page by bite size. Does anyone want to guess what guy in these four sports has the smallest Wikipedia page by bite size the entire amount? Got to be someone old. Whatever the oldest person we have on that list is. You are both correct and wrong. You're going to get the wrong answer, but you don't know how correct you are. Oh, no. That doesn't help at all. Diaz, um, do you have a guess before I reveal? Uh, give me... Um... No, nah, I don't have to guess. It is in many ways our oldest guy. It's Damian Miller. Damian yes. Miller has the smallest one. And I will tell you why. I think a big part of it is his profile picture is the grainiest fucking photo I've seen in my entire life. <laughs> I've seen a great man. It's probably hard to find uh, pictures <laughs> that true. are like it's <laughs> true. in oh. public domain. So we've got all the sizes of the Wikipedia pages. The other thing I wanted to look at is their views. And I just took at this point in time, quickly, if you go to page info without putting in any kind of custom search, it will give you number of views in the past 30 days. Maybe some things have happened with some of these players recently that have brought them to mind. We're not trying to worry about that this time. We're just going to take at face value all of those views. And so now we've got, we've got the body of work score. That's what I think later on we need to take everything that you all have to build. I think the body of work score needs to be improved by being built with those stats. But it is what it is right here. You assume someone who has produced more is going to just get viewed more. Like they've done more stuff. What I decided to look at is... Page views divided by one plus the weighted scores. 
This ensures that for one, we had some guys who just did not produce anything on the field. We did have a couple people finish with either negative war or zero AV in both baseball and football. So if we're going to divide by something, we cannot divide by zero. Uh, Herb Washington, by the way, with the lowest war of anyone, negative 0.5. We're going to divide the overall views by their body of work score. And then we're also going to divide it by 100 because initially those numbers were very big and I didn't like them. That is going to give us what I have as the guy score. And what I wanted to do with that before I went through any of the initial scores was like, see if this largely made sense. See if this was spitting out numbers that I thought could be kind of normalized. So I said, let's look at the median, the middle number. Let's see what it comes out to. And guys, in this data set of 69 people, the median score is 42.0. Incredible. The math is so fucking nice. <laughs> this spit it out and, and I look at it and uh, you guys have this in front of you and I'll, I'll read through a couple highlights of it, but it's given a list that I do think kind of tears correctly to Guinness as I read through it. Like it feels correct. Now, there are some outliers that are worth mentioning. The highest score does go to Carl Weathers, who isn't really getting a lot of Wikipedia page views, I think, for his career with the Oakland Raiders. So like that <laughs> one, that one is maybe an outlier. The next ones though, uh, if we're talking about guys that are currently in the hall, you've got Nick Foles, Brian Bosworth, Drew Bledsoe, Paul Bizanet, Bobby Bonilla. You've got a good mix of sport there and you have what I think are some really elite guys. I think these are some of the highest listed guys. You keep going down. We've got Tim Horton. We've got Arvidas Sabonis. We've got Ty Domi. Again, I think this is a very upper echelon, you know, going all the way down to about a hundred. Got still Edwin Jackson in there. You've got Sam Bowie. You've got Jeremy Giambi, who had one of the highest page views of any of the baseball players, which was absolutely baffling to me. Jamie Moyer, like these feel like inner circle Hall of Guy members. A little further, that next list is people like R.A. Dickey, Marcus Camby, Clint Malarchuk. I think, again, this is an appropriate kind of second tier of guys. We go further, and I think you go into, like, some of the guys who are appropriately down here because they're guys we've had an issue with about maybe being too good, and a lot of them are all clumped together here, regardless of sport, because you've got... Ben Zobris, but you've also got Nick Anderson. You've got Ken Dryden in this area. You've got Rube Waddell. Like, these are all very good players who I think have intangibles that bring them into guy status, but it's notable that they're this further back. Like, this is around the 42. We're here around that median, and it is somewhere where you have to have a further conversation, but you've hit that median benchmark, and I think you automatically, you're not dropping off the first ballot. You're not going to have fewer than 5% on your first ballot when someday we expand the electorate of this. You're going to stick around at least for the full discussion. We go a little further and the lowest score that we have on here, really like Damian Miller, there are not a lot of people remembering it, but I don't think a low score is prohibitive because we've made the case before that sometimes it's about we're remembering these guys because everyone's remembering them. Sometimes we're remembering them because it's our duty to remember them. Like we have to be the ones to hold that torch for it. So again, a low score shouldn't be in any way disqualifying, but we're further down here in guys that aren't necessarily being remembered that I think it's important for us to do that. So it's, it's got a very good grouping of guys. It has a very good distribution of the sport. So I think for now, like largely we've solved that issue between sports, at least with this formula, 
which means that we can when we switch the other inputs. Like, I, I believe that we can get this to work across multiple sports. And that's what I have that my insanity has worked out the last 24 hours. I've been very excited to share this spreadsheet <laughs> with you all. Um, any thoughts? I think, I mean, obviously the 69 and the 42.0, both of those components tell me that this is 100% the direction we are supposed to be going in. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the things that jumped out to me going through it, like to me, like it almost goes from top to bottom of the guys that are being talked about most. Like that's, yeah. that's kind of, the, that's like, that's how I'm processing all of this. So I guess the one that surprised me to see so high up was I get there's, there's nothing really surprising, which is like, I guess probably the best uh, thing that I can say about your work. Cause like, as I go through it, it's like, yeah, like everything kind of falls in where it should be. I want to, I want to shout out the two median guys, the two median guys who are. Oh yes. 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 I think that's very important. Thank you. Moise Salou and Mike Sillinger, both with the exact 42.0 on that median. So. And, and surrounded by Damari Carroll and Anderson Verichow. Like that is your four in the middle of 69 pretty fucking perfect and again you've got all three of the sports except for football there but there's still plenty of football underneath like i i think a lot works here and i think when we get a better input in terms of what body of work is this will become even more perfect but i'm sorry z oh no i was just looking at uh i can't i was thinking about how many of the bobby bonilla page views were related to shohei otani Oh, that's it. I hadn't thought about that. Cause that was one thing I was, as I was going through this, like, Ooh, I'm glad we're not 30 days within Bobby Bonilla day. Cause that would probably throw off the data a little bit, but it was 30 days within everyone looking Shohei, at yes. Shohei and, and all the deferrals. So I was, wondering, I was wondering if that would throw off the data at all, but it also shows that another thing about Bobby is that whenever anyone has a deferral, Bobby Bonilla page views might spike. Because yeah. everyone's like, ah, oh, it's just like Bobby Bonilla. Just like Bobby Bonilla. It's just like Bart. <laughs> yeah, and other than that, I mean, I, the Boz being so high up is is, is very fun. I, I like, Bosworth feels like he should be up there. Bosworth with, I think, altogether, like, the fifth most page views of anyone. I, so real quick, the most page views by players, because I did find this very interesting. Uh, going in opposite order from, let's say... Uh, so Tim Horton's got about 40,000. Then you've got two in the mid fifties, Brian boss with 54 K and drew Bledsoe with 56 K two in the seventies. John wall is on here. Technically not in the hall yet, but like not producing the NBA anymore. So I felt okay. Including his win shares in the data set. Uh, he's got 72,000 Carl Weathers, 76,000, but Carl Weathers, not the most viewed guy on the list. That would be Footlong Foles himself. Big dick. Which makes me feel vindicated that Nick Foles is the outlier on this list. He's he and it's I, all been Philadelphians. Half of those paid views have been Justin Diaz. I think there's a few factors that we could point to for this. First of all, Joe Flacco, backup quarterback, old guy coming in mm-hmm. when you thought he was done. There's there's certainly some parallels to be drawn there. And secondly, I mean, to your point, Xavier, yes, a lot of Eagles fans have probably been looking up what's Nick Foles doing because Jalen Hurts fucking middle finger is taking a right angle right now. It's not supposed to do that. And I'm not particularly confident 
about Marcus Mariota either. So I think there are certainly a few Eagles fans that are wistfully and way too seriously considering the possibility that Foles comes in and saves the season. So the last thing I wanted to do with this formula is test it out on someone that uh, I more or less considered newly eligible that felt very guy-like to me. Just recently, Ricky Rubio decided he was going to be hanging it up. He's been taking a break from the NBA since last August, I believe. Uh, For his mental health, he has had a, a particularly singular career being, I believe, just shy of 15. Uh, this, he was guy of the day today, so I should remember this better. I believe he was just shy of 15 when he started like playing professional ball. So a career that understandably has you know, affected him somewhat. Um, totally reasonable that he would need to take off and happy for him to do that. Anyway, Ricky Rubio feels very much like a guy to me. And so I decided to collect the same data and take a look. Ricky Rubio had a pretty nice career. Not quite as nice as it could have been, but 698 games played and 42.3 win shares in that time. Good effort, Ricky Rubio. He also, so then I went to look at his page views in the last 30 days. And understandably, in the last three or four days, a lot of people have been looking at Ricky Rubio's Wikipedia page. So this is the only time I did take it from a slightly different data set for the dates that went in. Uh, I basically went up till the day before the spike. And in that time, he had 24,309 views. Pretty good. All of that plugged into our formula gives Ricky Rubio a very good score. He's in some really good territory. His 151.4 slots him in right between Jamie Moyer and Jeremy Giambi. And I'm going to say, after having done a guy of the day for Ricky Rubio today, after having spent some time with him to put that up. And again, folks, if you want to see all of these delightful guys of the day every day, everything's on Discord and Blue Sky. And you can find the links to both of those at bit.ly slash remember that guy, all one word, all lowercase. Anyway, I think Ricky Rubio is a high-level guy. It is a little surprising to me that his score does put him there in like inner circle hall of guy. But that is a score that when it gets chugged out by this formula, feels pretty right to me. And that was kind of like my last test to see how this felt. So, folks, this is a work in progress. But I think that we have, between what you all have brought to the table, the best ways that we can possibly measure that body of work measure in particular not just what a guy is doing on the field but what guy stuff someone's doing on the field or court or ice additionally i think that's going to allow us to bring other sports in eventually this is of course limited right now in my way of looking at this to those four major sports though i again got the w guys in there uh for what it's worth they had pretty low page views not entirely surprising However, there is one thing that this still needs afterwards. It needs a catchy title. And Diaz, you teased this so long ago, but if you would, please, I want to hear exactly how we're going to discuss this stat someday when it is codified and when people are looking forward to the Hall of Guy induction every year. Absolutely. So when we segued into the segment, we mentioned that because of his incredible output with the rebounds, Dylan Windler absolutely had that dog in him. And that's how we kind of segued into this. So the statistic that we, and when I say we, I primarily mean James in their manic research, which we love and appreciate so much to describe what we're going for. We came up with somebody who has demonstrated aptitude with guidance. D-A-W-G, dog. This is not 
a nice dog that sits down and, you know, asks for belly rubs. No, we're looking for a tough motherfucker that gets in there and does some guy shit. Demonstrated aptitude with guyness. Dog is how this metric shall be referred to. In the end, dog is what we're looking for at the heart of every guy. And so it feels so deeply appropriate that Diaz, you were able to create that wordplay to let us now literally look for the dog within each guy. And I, uh, I look forward to the ways that we can try and use this to kind of influence our conversations going forward. This has been a delightful one, and we're very appreciative of the people that have made that possible. That is, of course, producer Craig and all the coders behind him, uh, our musical director, Don Ham, for that lovely theme music. And we hope you all have enjoyed this conversation. And, you know, if you want to do the formula, it's pretty fucking easy. And so now you, too, can find the dog of any guy that you're interested in who has some kind of overall output stat determined by the Sports Reference family of websites. Thank you again, Sports Reference and Wikipedia. But yeah, that's available to you. Hey, if you do it, why don't you share it with us? You can, again, find all those links at bit.ly slash remember that guy, all one word, all lowercase. Anything else from you guys as we as we wrap up here? Yeah, I got a couple things real quick what? that I should have brought up earlier. First, one of my favorite MLS-isms happened earlier today. This is a tweet from NYCFC. NYCFC has traded the college-protected period priority for Brodillo Rodriguez to the Sounders for a natural third-round pick in the 2025 MLS Super Draft. The club retains a sell-on percentage and could receive up to $50,000 in general allocation money if certain performance-based metrics are achieved. Did they also acquire the rights to Ricky Sanchez? <laughs> they did not, unfortunately. That would have been wild if they did, if somehow the Sounders had those and just said, hey, we'll trade them to NYCFC. But MLS salary rules, so fucking funny. Love how stupid those tweets are when they, when they have random trades that make no sense. I remember the Red Bulls had to trade 50000 in general allocation money to Minnesota for Caden Clark once, even though Caden Clark came through the Red Bulls Academy and Minnesota didn't exist as a team when they signed Caden Clark. But by the time Caden Clark was ready for his first professional contract, Minnesota existed. They had come in as an expansion team and were given priority over anyone from Minnesota, even though he had not been there in years. So they had to pay them money to play the player they already had signed years ago before the team existed. It feels like that feels like the sports legal lease version of this bullshit with like if a farmer has GMO crops and then the seeds blow onto your farm, you've stolen their product. Like that's bullshit. All right. Look, the seeds blew over to Red Bull Academy. They were developed there. They were harvested there. They bloomed there. They grew there. We don't need to uproot them and like, you know, fucking extort a fee. That's absolutely ridiculous. It, it How made does Mom no sense. Santo not have a sports team yet? They will eventually. Don't don't worry. But the other two things I wanted to say real quick. One, Asante Samuel continues to be the biggest hater on Twitter. Senior man, or junior? Senior. Senior. Sorry. The man continues to just randomly hate Sauce Gardner. Like, he did it in the offseason, and then today just tw tweeted out, uh, you should have at least one interception to be eligible for postseason awards. Obviously, like a clear subtweet at, at Sauce after having done it multiple times. And Sauce so like, dude, what the hell did I ever do to you? And now Samuel's complaining, why are all these Jets fans in my mentions 
leave me alone. Like, you're the one who tweeted this random stupid ass shit and then tweeted all the weirdest like Microsoft Paint graphic showing that he was great because he had so many picks. Despite, you know, that not being the, a good way to measure cornerbacks, as we are all aware. Yeah, I mean, like, Asante Samuel is, like, or I should say Trayvon Diggs is in, like, the Asante Samuel mold, where it's like, look, fine cornerback, takes a lot of risks, gets a lot of picks because of that, also gets burned, a, like, a, a good amount of the time. The Eagles won playoff games because of Asante Samuel. They lost playoff games because of Asante Samuel. The Patriots lost the 19-0 Patriots because Asante Samuel was one of their corners. Let's call it what it is. I mean, I just, th- it's... Versus a Darrell Revis, some, which is like... Some Salt Bears Park. fans are pissed right now because they thought that Jalen Johnson should have been first-team All-Pro. And I would agree about that. The problem was there's only two, and they gave them to Sauce, who ended up as PFF's number one-rated corner, and Deron Bland, who was not in the top 32 because Deron Bland had six pick-sixes in nine interceptions, which are flashy... And again, was not graded as one of the top 32 cornerbacks in the league because he got the picks because quarterbacks were comfortable throwing at him as much as possible. I I would be curious the target disparity between the two because I can't imagine Sauce gets more than like three a game. Yeah, Deron Bland, I would imagine, is probably more like eight to ten. Deron Bland had 89 targets this year and Sauce had 51. So, oh, so, so, wow, I fucking nailed oh, targets, did I not? <laughs> yeah, 38 more, and Deron Bland's coverage grade was was pretty low. But he had a lot of picks, so, you know, that, 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 helps, that helps a lot. Then the last thing I want to do is I want to shout out, we, we've shouted out Agent before, we've gotten Agent into the Hall of Guy. Gotta shout out Jimmy Sexton. Mm. For anyone who doesn't know, this man is one of the most powerful agents in college football. And he got that way because he was college roommates with Reggie White. And so he ended up negotiating Reggie White's Eagles contract because they were roommates. The lesson of Rich Paul and Reggie White is if you want to be successful, have more talented friends. And he represents so many coaches now in college football that he represented Nick Saban. Saban retires. As part of that retirement, Dan Lanning, who he represents, Mike Norvell, who he represents, and Steve Sarkeesian, who he represents, were all targets of Alabama and were all given massive contract extensions that Sexton gets a piece of. And then he also represents Kalen DeBoer, who then just got a contract to Alabama. So this man gets four massive paydays in the space of a day, all because one of his other clients retired. That is working smarter, not harder. Good for the agents. Diaz, anything before we head out? Shout out the Lasses. It's the day after, but yesterday, Sunday, they played the biggest game in the history of the club, uh, FA Cup. I believe it was the fourth round of the Women's Cup right now. And uh, they're visiting, not Old Trafford, because I don't think Man U's playing the game at Old Trafford, but they are visiting the Man U women, who are a member of the Women's Super League. Newcastle currently operating in the third tier, but... Undefeated on the season for the league, looking like if they take care of business, they should get promoted up to the championship next season. And it's just a tremendous opportunity. The away fan allotment of 1,000 tickets sold out within minutes. So there's 1,000 Jordies traveling to Manchester to cheer on the lasses. And 
you know, just like we we called our shots slash reflected on what happened with the NFL playoffs. Last is win. Two one. Katie Barker. What a rip. What a rip by Katie Barker in the dying minutes to get it. What a famous victory for the lasses. How do, do you want to do you want to tell Bobby to eat shit real quick? Oh yeah, Bobby eat shit. I did talk with him earlier today. I think we are going to be psychos and wake up at 7 a.m. to watch that game Sunday morning before uh, NFL Goddamn playoffs. Right. Goddamn right, baby. Well, what a phenomenal win that was, and what a fun time this has been. We hope you will enjoy us for another fun time next week. We will have another guest on as we wrap up our last little bit here before starting off a new season. But until then, folks, I've been James. I've been the very special guest, Xavier. And I've been Diaz. And as Martin Luther King Jr. once said, our lives begin to end the day we become silent about the guys that matter. Both an incredible quote and like maybe one of the most sacrilegious here is how we make college football mean something again in terms of tradition and like loyalty to the program and whatnot Mm -hmm. because and this is also going to return college athletics to what it was supposed to be which is like sports for non-professional athletes versus Mm -hmm. being like a, a minor ground here's what you do you commit to a school and you don't transfer, you never run out of eligibility. <laughs> so wait. If you're good enough, you're going to go pro. But if you're not good enough, but you're still good enough to be good at a college level. How old how you- can you get? How old? Okay, how many 29-year-olds rushing a fraternity stay on these football teams? <laughs> I would say do it like youth soccer rules, but we do it U30. As long as you're U30, you can play college football. There's been older people than that to play college football, especially like the Australians that right, come over. Right, but I'm saying yeah. like, and and here comes fucking Xavier Perez, the 11th year super senior for Temple. We remember back in 2012, he came close, and now 10 years later, he looks to hopefully complete his mission. Like, that's do, what it's about, man. Do you have to keep taking minimum a class every year? Because I just yeah. like picturing like, what the fuck is a 27-year-old doing on his Monday at 1130 in lecture hall? Yeah, no, it, one class and like they can just take like a night lecture on Wednesday nights. That's like a fun thing. And it's like a three hour lecture and they can do that. It doesn't need to be rigorous study because as Cardale Jones once famously said, <laughs> we ain't come here to play school. <laughs> or fuck it. If you are getting smart enough to like get a degree, just keep getting degrees. Right. Exactly. I, I think there are three players who have had eight years of college eligibility from what I've been able to find. So there's Bradley Rosner, who was a grad student at NC State this year, or then was Rice for four years, but multiple injuries, and then Cisco College for three years of JUCO, but injured for two of those three years. So the man had supposed to be a two-year thing. (laughs) The man had three season-ending injuries and two transfers. Then we got Jared Folks on Eastern Tennessee State who started at Temple, accumulated two degrees, was working on his third with his MBA, went to Nebraska and then Eastern Tennessee State University, and then Northern Illinois had a guy named Kyle Pugh. And it looks like he stayed on NIU's 
roster the entire eight years. So he is a real trooper. Yeah, what was his name again? Kyle Pugh. So it's the Kyle Pugh rule is what I'm proposing. You stay loyal to one program. You get all your glory years until you turn 30. One last bit. Oldest guy to ever play college football was apparently 61. I found this out on oldest.org, which is a website that just has lists of the oldest people to do things. That's fine. Uh, Wasn't it just like a 61? It was like a jacked ass black guy, right? No, no. It's this old scrawny white guy who had been in college in 68, graduated, had played football there, has like a whole life in construction. Economy goes to shit in 2008, 2009. He figures, all right, I'll just go back to school. He decides to walk on the Faulkner University football team. And he does at one point kick an extra point for them with the old fashioned shoes, with an old fashioned head on kick, not a soccer kick. I love it. That's that, that's that <laughs> proper American football.